0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Easton. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Tony Basil, the singer, actress, choreographer and also dancer, filmmaker and much, much more. And obviously had the massive hit in the early 80s with Mickey and um, has worked with such people as David Bowie, Elvis Presley, Talking Heads, and many, many more. So with all that excitement, I thought we'd, uh, yes, definitely need to get on the show. So um, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was, yes, her love of dance and how that all began. Anyway, Tony's going to explain everything now. Tony, it's over to you.
1: Okay, I came from a show business family. My father was an orchestra leader uh, and my mother's side of the family were mm, they had a vaudevillian act. It was like uh, which you can see their act on my YouTube channel, Tony Basil's House. Uh, You can see almost all of my work on my YouTube channel. Yes. uh, Tony Basil's House. And uh, because they were on Ed Sullivan in the 60s, which was a very big TV show. Uh, in the, actually in the 50s and the 60s. So you can see their act. Um, so I, I came from a show business family, and that's what I knew how to do. I went into the family business, so to speak. Yes. And my dad was an orchestra leader in New York and then Chicago at the Chicago Theater and then Las Vegas. So that was by that time I was in high school and I went to Las Vegas High and I was head cheerleader there.
0: Yes. And did it just, was it just one of those things that you found came to you quite easily and sort of you had a slight, not, obs- yeah, addiction, I suppose, or obsession?
1: Yeah, an addiction and an obsession is good terminology. Um, but, you know, um, that's what I knew was show business and I went to ballet class every day and I loved all forms of dance and cheerleading was certainly a form of dance, and so was social dancing, uh, you know, the jitterbug and that kind of thing. And then in the 60s, I became very, very interested uh, when I moved to Los Angeles in all the 60s style of dance. And I went to ballet class in the day and the clubs at night, and uh, I started to assist a very famous uh, dancer, actor, Dave Winters, who was in West Side Story, and we started to choreograph uh, all the uh, so many of the 60s films, uh, you know, including Viva Las Vegas with Ann, Margaret and Elvis Presley. Yeah. So I worked, you know, I worked pretty, pretty much straight through my life as a as a as a dancer or a singer, or performer, or an actor. Um, you know, I was an obsessive dancer and I love dance and I this called dance. Being- studio and dance after this interview.
0: Yes, and also then sort of just fast forward and slightly to the sort of early 70s, this is where you started to, uh, well you did the work with David Bowie on his Diamond Dogs tour in 1974 So how yes, did, so how did, did. That, so how did that call come about? I mean, how did he sort of discover you or how did you discover him? I just wondered what the process was of, of sort of meeting him, because he'd just done Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane, so he was sort of going through the 70s with great enthusiasm I just wondered how that that uh, uh, cr- creative collaboration happened
1: mm-hmm. in the early 70s and 76. Um, I put a, a dance group together, uh, a street dance group together. Most of the dancers came out of Soul Train. And uh, there was a few like really brilliant dancers that were doing a dance called the Campbell Lock. It was created by Dan- Don Campbell. And, um, I put together a group uh, based on his, that dance and who, uh, that dance style with him. Um, and we started to do a lot of television shows and we were very, very different. Nobody had seen anything like us. And the agent that started to agent the lockers was also agenting uh And his people had seen uh, the lockers, and he had heard about me, and he brought me over to England to just just for a general conference about possibly working with him, uh, because I was very multifaceted, and as we all know, David Bowie was multi multi multifaceted. Yeah. So uh, we had some meetings, and then when he was getting ready to do. Diamond Dogs uh, he brought me into New York to choreograph the opening number, and then I ended up co directing the whole show with him and choreographing
0: it yes, because that 's quite a f- quite an epic production that he put together, and obviously yeah worked... it
1: was really the first kind of type of what David and I called rock theater
0: yes, he loved his rock theater because he'd done a lot of mime stuff in the sort of 60s yeah. with Lindsay Kemp and obviously he was always he, he
1: was ex- yeah he was very very knowledgeable in all types of theatre
0: and how did that how did that because then you know a decade later or a little and more um you you then sort of worked on his Glass Spider tour in 87 so I did so how did that experience uh you know how was that um what was the ge- the general sort of way that also came together and how you know was it very similar or was it quite different experience
1: no it was um similar the both of us were much more savvy you know in that type of theater his show was bigger um glass fighter was a bigger set a bigger band more dancers you know it was bigger but but it was the same type of collaboration.
0: Yes. And obviously there was a lot more, I suppose, a lot more money and a lot more technology moved. Because I saw that production and show when it came to, well, he was touring the world with it, but I saw it in Berlin. So obviously that was quite something then. So had you sort of also had you toured with that or were you, did you just set that up and then let it go?
1: I set it up and I think, uh, we, I think we opened it up in Amsterdam.
0: right. Yes. And when you do Uh and when you do a sort of show like that for somebody, do do you have to do you change it much as you sort of watch it progress? And do you think, oh, actually, that needs to come Uh, out?
1: Sure. After opening, uh, there are adjustments, you know, I mean, you can. You can guess. To a certain extent, but once a full audience is sitting there watching it, you get a different feel about the pace and order of songs or,
0: you know, yeah. Yeah, I just wonder because...
1: you don't really know the show until it's in front of an audience.
0: Yes. And, and obviously, you know, I sort of grew up watching all those films with Sid Charisse and um, Frank, um, yes, Gene Kelly and uh, I was going to say Frank Sinatra, but it's not Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire. I mean, did you, you know, also sort of have a great sort of love of those kind of that, that period of dance that came out of America in the 30s and 40s?
1: Well, absolutely, because as I said, I came from that show business family, and my dad was an orchestra leader, and in Chicago, um, in the 40s and the 50s, there were what they called stage shows, so there was an opening act, which was usually dancers, or a tap dancing group, or a juggling group, and there was a comic. and there was a singer, and then after that show finished, there was a movie, and there was about four repetitions of that a day. Um, So I saw all the American musical movies also, as well as standing on the side of the stage and seeing that era of show business. So um, I did have a great love of that that era and, and that is definitely infused in my work and has always been influential.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because then, you know, sort of to, to throw a lot more into it, you know, it not just dance and chore- choreography, you also did, a, you know, had an amazing sort of career singing as well. So obviously, you know, you had a sort of another British connection working with people like, you know, Nicky Chin and, and um, Mike Chapman as well with, with sort of various songs, including Kitty. So when you started to develop, uh, you know, the, the sort of pop side, did that, was that something that got in the way of the dancing?
1: No, because the dancing was always included. I, Before I started to really record, um, I, after I put together the group, the lockers, then I put together kind of bigger shows that I was singing in and using street dancers, some of the lockers and ballet dancers. So I was singing and putting on these shows of, of of pop songs and using dancers before that happened, you know, before Janet Jackson and Madonna used dancers. I was doing that in the mid-70s, and um, so, no, singing would not get in the way of dancing. It was all-inclusive because As you had mentioned to me about the American musicals, when you saw a Sid Charisse or a Gene Kelly or a Fred Astaire, they were singing and dancing. Yes. And I always thought they went hand in hand.
0: Yes, absolutely. But, you know, I've sort of done a lot of interviews with musicians and bands and, and um, the one thing that I suppose people are never sort of prepared for is is if it actually works, because most people, obviously, it doesn't sort of ever really, you know, get, get off the sort of runway and take off. But then, you know, you had that massive hit in the early 80s. How did that feel suddenly sort of having that sort of, you know, global sort of recognition so quick, you know, sort of? I suppose the whole thing sort of probably was, was a bit like a rocket taken mm-hmm. off at, at NASA. So did you sort of, was that, was that hard? It wasn't to...
1: quick. It wasn't quick because I had two, I was signed to Warner Brothers and I did a live album and another album and a, a pilot in America before I had, before I recorded the album that Mickey was on. And um, it was recorded for a European label and the U, uh, and I, and I'm, and it was I did some music videos for this label to promote these songs, and uh, the BBC saw the videos and asked me to do a special, and it was from that special where I also directed and choreographed and wrote the special um, that Mickey was on that special, and it was within six weeks of airing that that Mickey really hit, I think, number two on the charts and then number one in Australia. And then I got an American deal. So I was, uh, it was n- 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 not not really that quick. No. I mean, I was always working and creating. And, you know, I wasn't ever, I know it sounds unusual, but when you're working like that, you're, you're really not looking for the end game. You're kind of doing your art and your work. Um, and then what comes of it, you know, comes later. And quite frankly, I was always promoting that song ahead of when the song was a hit. So I wasn't really experiencing the 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 extraordinary success. I experienced the extraordinary success of that song more now.
0: Yes. Well absolutely. The longevity has, has been amazing. I mean, what would you Oh, it's
1: been an anthem
0: it has been an anthem i mean there are a few songs that have just sort of will be with us to the end of time really and that was that's definitely one of them and it yes you can't it's just everywhere isn't it i mean what would you say to an 18 year old self that was kind of you know that that sort of wisdom that you've built up over the decades that you thought oh that's something that would have been just really good if someone had whispered that into my you know ear backstage or sort of one one day sort of at rehearsal
1: what would i've said to an 18 year old
0: yeah or you'll you know or so, something or something that you wish some
1: somebody... yeah I, I think i would have a lawyer but quite frankly when you're ahead of your time it's very difficult to make contracts about things that haven't happened yet that are yes. in the future um, you know, there's, there's all those tales about all those um, amazing movie stars that, that were in the movies in the, in the 40s and the, and the 30s and the 40s and the early 50s before television. And when their movies went on TV, they never saw any money because when they made their contract, there was no such thing as a TV so how can you create protection about something you don't know is going to happen? And, um, as you know, uh, uh, I, I, what I was doing with, uh, with, with the singing and the dancing was pre MTV. So I would just say, get a good lawyer, but if, if the lawyer didn't have a crystal ball <laughs> you know it's uh it it can be difficult it yes. it, it can be difficult
0: mm-hmm. so so how do you manage to survive cuz the industry that that you're in you know is kind of n- notorious for sort of you know kind of, you know, sort of, it's like a conveyor belt, isn't it? You know, people come, you know, they have their moment, that zeitgeist experience, and then it's like, right, that's that done, let's let's get another, one, another person, another act, another artist, another band. I mean, I just wondered how you managed to sort of, keep your sanity and and sort of your feet on the ground when when so much kind of happens and sometimes you have those amazing highs and then you have to deal with the next moment and the next day so I just wondered how you emotionally keep keep it together or kept it together during that period
1: well I I think one my longevity has been because I'm very eclectic um I can work with From a David Bowie to a Bette Midler to a Tina Turner. Um, I can work and create. uh, Street dance concepts and choreography. Um, But I also. Come from a show business family and I have a. A very deep. And an understanding of the business. So. It, it, it's I, I wasn't like somebody coming into the business like the sex pistols who didn't know what hit them who had never had any experience and kind of um, you know devoured themselves um, I, I came from a family business of show business and it wasn't about really being a star it was about the longevity in the business so you know with I would going from acting to singing to choreographing back to acting to singing to choreographing. And now that there's all these mammoth street dance competitions all over the world, which I judge. And I love, love, love doing that. um, uh, I'm eclectic enough to survive, you know, in the business, there's always something, I mean, look, I mean, who would have thought I certainly wouldn't that, Quentin Tarantino would have been knocking at my door, asking me to choreograph his film once upon a time in Hollywood. I mean, you kind of have to know things come out of nowhere and they do in the business. You just don't know. I mean, you know, you, you hang up the phone and then your agent calls and says, you're on hold for this television show or, you know, Bette Midler's going back out on tour. Um, So you just kind of, you know uh um except that that that's that's how things work
0: yes absolutely and when you sort of look back cuz i mean you're in la at the moment and and sort of las vegas is just a short sort of hop across the desert and you and you see how vegas has changed in the strip and downtown as well I mean, that must, because you've had that connection, your dad was there in various kind of um, sort of orchestras as well conducting. I mean, does that sort of, do you sort of feel that you've also played a part in seeing things like the Cirque du Soleil and those massive shows and, you know, Beyonce there or also Britney Spears? I mean, you know, your influence is kind of it's kind of there, but at the same time, the way that, you know, entertainment has grown in, in places like Vegas is, is quite extraordinary, and I just wondered, when you sort of sometimes look at it, think, wow, that's, that's, that has changed a bit. The, you know, those, those hotels that we once played, or, or, you know, your dad once played in, are sort of long gone, but now something enormous is in its place.
1: Well, those, those, those hotels were pretty big. I mean, in, in, the, in the 60s, the Sands, the Sahara... Um that you know there were there were big hotels. The difference was there wasn't as many. I mean, you couldn't walk to another hotel um you had to drive for for blocks and blocks and blocks to each hotel now I mean it's just wall to wall um hotels and shows and shops and so it it definitely has grown and evolved but during all of that, I'm still very friendly um, and in touch with a lot of my high school friends. It was a very close high school. Um, I loved it, and I definitely am in touch with them. As a matter of fact, they a lot of them still they're buying my t-shirt line, which is um, a, a new line of t-shirts that I have that kind of include Pictures of, you know, from Mickey, You're So Fine, You Blow My Mind, Hey, Mickey, Um, the lockers, uh, you know, all sorts of images from my career, um, which you can find on my TonyBasil.net on my website in the merchandise department. And they're a lot of fun. So, I I mean, I'm in touch with, I, I don't, you know, I don't lose touch with people. I mean, it's like, you know, I worked with Bowie in 73 and then I worked with him again in 88, you know, um, and did a couple of videos in between. I worked with Tina in the mids when when she left Ike and I choreographed, which was what, 78 or something? And then I, I, I choreographed several shows, pop concerts for her and I just choreographed and directed her last one, her last tour. So, you know, it's, I I feel very connected with everything and everything does grow. It does change. And hopefully I develop and I change, Um, you know, when I have, when I'm not doing anything, I'm still singing and dancing. I go into my studio and I think of ideas and I see shows and, because I, everything constantly changes and develops.
0: Absolutely. And what's your sort of general kind of health regime? You know, on sort of food, drink, exercise. Do you do you have a set routine that you sort of stick to, kind of religiously? Well,
1: I I, I think the fact that I dance every day, um, but also I have always eaten really healthy, um, and. For years and years and years, I've been very organic, um, not to the point of crazy, but, you know, everything I cook here is organic. But if I go out to a restaurant, it doesn't have to be an organic restaurant. Um, I i must say, I never indulged in uh, uh, drinking or smoking or drugs, although... I tried them all and I've never been an addictive type of personality. So. Um, I, I really wasn't much interested in a lot of the mischief that some of my friends got into, I think, because dance is a drug and dance is my drug of choice. And after you dance, you're high and you kind of don't need another kind of drug.
0: Yes. I mean, and, and that's one thing that's quite interesting because obviously when you did those tours, you know, going back to the, you know, Diamond Dogs and then the Glass Spider, obviously uh, that was still a time when there was kind of quite a bit of kind of, you know, rock and roll and, you know, the whole, the whole biz. Sex, you know, drugs and rock and roll. That yeah. It was, it was up you know, to
1: th- I mean, you can't be on drugs and, and, and on alcohol if you're dancing. I guess if you're a sit-down musician, you can get into a lot of mischief because you can sit and play your instrument. But, man, if you have to get up and dance, uh, you, 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 you just can't be stoned or drunk. You really can't. It's, and you don't need to be because, as I said, dance makes you high.
0: Absolutely. It's an
1: addiction. Dance is an addiction.
0: But then there's those moments, and obviously you've been working with people now for decades and going back probably five, a bit like the Rolling Stones. I mean, obviously there's people who have been casualties during that time that you probably were close to. I mean, how do you sort of cope with those kind of moments? Because obviously there's people who aren't able to somehow keep it together and sort of say no, or they get into a bit of a down and then they, you know, unfortunately kill themselves. I just wondered, you know, dealing with those kind of things as well, you know, must be also quite difficult and you must think, God, over the years, you know, you, you look back and there's kind of a lot of fond memories and then probably a lot of sad ones. I just wondered how you process that.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, you didn't realize that people were going to die of drugs and ODs and, when you were younger, uh, until the '60s, and then you started to see people that were good friends, like Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones or Jim Morrison from the Doors, um, Hendrix. You 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 start to to realize uh, that that you know we're just not immortal and I don't know, I never got caught up, as I said, with dangerous, um, uh, you know, lifestyle. Uh, And uh, it's sad. I mean, the loss of Brian Jones to me, who was really a close friend, was quite devastating. (laughs) You know, that was just the beginning of, of people getting, you know, caught up with the wrong Lifestyle and falling down that rabbit hole.
0: Yes, and that's kind of yes, that's that's probably the one. And then the '60s finished on a bit of a down with, yeah, like Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and uh, Janis Joplin, sort of. And then you had Altamont. So that yeah, was I kind did,
1: of I didn't know her. No, I didn't know her. I, I knew the other three.
0: Yes. But then, you know, when mm-hmm. you have those kind of relationships like with David Bowie, I've always found that kind of interesting that he'd, you know, I've done interviews with, you know, El Slick and Mike Carson. I mean, they, it's kind of interesting, when, you know, when you must sit there and sometimes suddenly get a ping and you had an email from somebody that you think, God, I haven't heard from them for ages. So, do, you know, with those kind of relationships, do you just, you know, is it just the thing that, you know, they just kind of appear and then you just think, oh, that's quite nice. And then suddenly disappear, you know, that. I just wondered what that was kind of like, you know, with, with it's not like
1: anything. It's, it's not like anything. It's just, you know, as I said, I worked with David in 73 and I worked with him again in 88 or 87, whenever the, when the diamond dog, when the, um, grass spider tour, you just, um, and people don't forget we're very global. We're not neighbors. No. So it's, it's, not as easy, you know, you don't, you don't see people. When you work on a film, you're close with people, but they come from all over. And when the film is finished, mm, you know, you, you, you don't see them constantly. But that's part of the business. But you don't feel disconnected with them.
0: Yes, absolutely. I just always remember there was um, Brian Eno saying that he got an email a few days before David died saying, we did some great work. And he thought, oh, that's a bit strange. Yeah. I did too. I did too. Yes.
1: He he, he was emailing a, a lot of us. Um but he was emailing me before that too. So you know, um but as far as David's death goes, I mean, it was it was certainly a surprise because that was a Saturday or a Sunday. Um um I can tell you exactly. Hold on. Uh and I was reading in the newspaper, I'll tell you right now, uh in the Los Angeles Times, it was the Sunday Times, January 10th, Arts and Books, and it said with a huge picture of David on the front page of the Arts and Books section of the LA Times, a new day for David Bowie, take an excuse an exclusive inside look at the reclusive Artisonic journey that has resulted in an album known as Black Star. As I'm reading this, reading this Sunday, um, in front of the TV, kind of multitasking, reading and watching, you know, uh, BBC News, uh, breaking news. David Bowie has passed away. So, yes, it was a surprise. A shock, because not just from the emails, but you're you're reading, <laughs> you're reading about, you know, David's front page about what he's going to be doing, and there's breaking news that
0: he's passed away. Yes, shocking, just after his birthday as well, which is even more kind of bizarre timing. Very difficult. But um, I don't I d- celebrate birthdays. No, I don't blame you. So I don't. don't
1: no, I don't. I don't take birthdays christmas I, I don't take any of the holidays at all i don't take them seriously and i've never really even as a child um celebrated them because my dad was always working on the holidays that was the whole point of being in show business as you were performing for people on the holidays um yeah. so we would be down at the theater we weren't like a Family dinner and that kind of thing. We were down at the theatre on holidays.
0: Yes. And I sort of always remember sort of when I was listening to various people talk about careers... There was always moments where they would say, oh, this was a great period. And then there was a little bit of a dip. Do you have sort of when you look back, are there moments where you think, yeah, I, I, the work that you're doing was just like you feel really good. And then there's bits where you think, yeah, that was that was a little bit sort of not such a great moment. I just wondered how, how that can those two sort of um, kind of reflections kind of. Uh, feel. No, I
1: don't reflect. Well, I don't reflect unless somebody like you is calling me to reflect. because I'm always <laughs> moving forward. But um, really, I think uh, each era was very special, and I've been very lucky to be at the cutting edge of pop culture of every decade that I've lived. Uh, I was always involved um, in what was happening, whether it was those crazy go-go movies in the '60s or films like Easy Rider and Five Easy Pieces that changed the face of movie making, like The Lockers. That change the face of dance like a Bette Midler, a David Bowie, a Tina Turner. I mean, my God, uh, to look back at it. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that I got to be in the midst of all of that. And, uh, you know, I mean, and, and with Quentin Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Uh, and to always be, you know, involved in these groundbreaking these extraordinary street dance competitions that are absolutely all over the world. And they are dancing, um, American, uh, dances. They're all, all the dances that they battle in, whether it's locking or popping or hip hop or house or crumping or breaking. These are all American urban created art forms. So, which I've always been part of every single Part of that era, also. So I mean, you know, I I feel uh, I feel my talent has kept me, uh, you know, has been part of it, and my um, and and my friends have always really been at the cutting edge of pop culture.
0: And when you see one of those, you know, like a a new move or new dance, I mean, I was just thinking of the rap movement and and break dancing. Did you sort of think, oh, I'm going to have to sort of um, check this out a bit, you know, and sort of either have a sort of modify your own dance or sort of learn how to sort of do certain moves? Yeah,
1: I've always been inspired and I've always never, um, um, I've always welcomed anything and everything new and exciting um and i've always you know w- w- with my certain circle of friends and that that the dance culture we we always know about when things are happening probably 3 4 years before they even happen before you even know they're happening
0: yes that's not surprising <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, I just kind of—I'm just still amazed by the athleticness and the fluidity of, of kind of street dance and, and that sort of ability to sort of move with such fluid, you know, with, with such sort of grace, but at the same time with that kind it's of strength. It's spectacular. It is spectacular. It's
1: spectacular, and it grows and grows and grows. It grows quicker and faster than ballet or jazz dancing or tap dancing because the whole basis of so street dances is improvisation, and when people are constantly improvising, things change. You're influenced by the change in shoes, the change in music, the change in clothes. Everything that I just mentioned influences dance. What you're standing on, the floors, um, the music. It as you improvise, you adjust to the surroundings, and so street always changing. It's always changing and developing in leaps and bounds.
0: But just kind of lastly, I mean, I don't know if you you probably do know that that scene with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse in the I think it's the Boneyard, which was kind of quite a radical different sort of quite a radical different sort of dance he did, which then Michael Jackson kind of not plagiarises, but he's quite similar to one of his kind of particular dances. Did you think that someone like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Sid Charisse, if they were around today, would they still be at the sort of forefront of dance?
1: Uh, well, if I, I think their style is still extraordinary and is definitely accepted because you can still look at those films with oohs and ahs. But I think if Fred Astaire was uh, around uh, now and let's say he stayed 30 for his whole life because if he was around, he'd be a hundred and thirty. um he, he would absolutely be influenced by, you know, his surroundings. I mean, Michael was always influenced. Uh, my dancing changed radically over the years as I saw James Brown. My my dancing changed. Um, all sorts of things. Change it. So, and Astaire was always creating. So when you're a creative person... Um, you know, you're influenced, you're you you just influenced.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, look, Tony, this has been fantastic. I think that's quite, I've got quite a lot, and you're probably sort of thinking, I need to go and do something else. But look, thank you ever so much. It's, it, we've got there in the end, which was, I think it was quite, I don't know when I first got in touch with you, but it was a while. Yeah, back, I,
1: I hope your um, audience will, you know, visit my website and my um my merchandise, but you can go to my website and see, you know, I, I keep it up and you can see what I'm doing or my Facebook yes. um, or, uh, y- you know, the, my Instagram and uh, also you can see the lockers on the lockers website, the lockersdance.com in the video section, but you can also go to my Vimeo, Tony Basil Vimeo and see two extraordinary Performances of the lockers on Soul Train and on Saturday Night Live that you really can't see anywhere else because uh, NBC um, just doesn't let their TV shows be on Facebook or or YouTube channel or anything like that. Um, so and also I just recut Mickey and Shopping A to Z, so it's on all streaming platforms and um, it's mine from that i did from scratch which is sounds exactly like the original except i will see the funds from it um is called hey mickey and uh shopping a to z is up there so i really hope your your audience will visit those and if they're interested in downloading mickey that they download my mickey so i actually uh you know uh can can earn some money off of it because i've never really been able to earn any money off of the songs we're no. we're in court now and we're uh trying to um make that happen
0: yes well good luck that, that you deserve it anyway look this has been fantastic and i hope it you know hope next year or this year and the new decade is good and fruitful and um you keep on dancing it's got to be done.
1: Well, um, and, and I hope your audience, uh, I, I really appreciate doing this show and I and I love to reach out to people and this way with social media and the live streaming of my songs, you know, you can keep up with me.
0: Indeed. And on that cliffhanger, we'll say goodbye. That was me in conversation with Tony Basil, finding out about her life in music, art, dance, and much, much more. And if you want to find out any more information, you can go to her Uh, website which is tonybasil.net and also she has twitter and facebook as well so uh, do check that all out this has been david or the c86 show if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show as long as it's nice and positive otherwise don't bother and um yes all the yes all these have been archived as well so you can find those on spotify itunes or podbean anyway have a great week stay safe